Hello, and welcome to the Jill Cruz podcast. This is Jill Cruz. And today I had, oh man, did I have a great conversation today with the authors of a book called Taking Care of You, The Empowered Woman's Guide to Better Health. And this book should have been written a long time ago, and we don't know why it wasn't written, or maybe we have a clue because of our patriarchal society, but oh boy, this is such an amazing resource. And uh, I speak today with the authors, Dr. Mary O'Connor and Kamwal Hawk. They are passionate about helping you to empower you when you walk into any kind of medical situation to be informed. And we talk in the, in the podcast about how it takes courage. You know, women, we kind of have been taught to to not speak our minds and not uh, advocate for ourselves. And this book is such a great resource and tool for you to empower you to advocate for yourself in a meaningful way. And we just, we talk a lot about all kinds of, you know, why they wrote the book, the experiences they had, stories about women just having terrible experiences in the medical industry. So uh, this is a very important podcast episode. Like it really is required listening <laughs> and I think that this book is also required reading and it's, it'll be a great resource for you to have. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, Kamwal and Mary. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. Uh, Jill, so excited to be with you and your listeners. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, this is, I am super excited about this conversation because as I mentioned to you, looking at what you're, you've done with this book and, and the purpose of your book, I think it's just an incredible tool that people can use, that women can use to be more empowered in their health. That's, that's the way that I saw it. And, and of course, this podcast is all about empowered health for women. So it's like right up my, our alley. <laughs> so tell me, why did you write the book? Uh, sure, I can start with that. So Women do not receive the same health care as men. We know that so many different conditions like heart disease, arthritis, stroke, mental health, so many more, they impact women a lot differently than men. And, you know, that was kind of the crux that started this journey of just kind of realizing that women's health gets narrowed into maternal reproductive health. And while those issues are absolutely very important. That's actually my bread and butter of what I do during the day. There's so many other conditions that impact us throughout our lifespan that we just, we don't have any idea of like how they're going to impact us or how we're going to go about seeking this care. And so really we wrote this book so that it supports you all these different stages of life and how you can take care of yourself, how you can be a better advocate for yourself. And, you know, our hope is that this will be the, what you need to know book that covers, you know, all of the things you're going to need to know. Of course, in this first edition, we weren't able to cover, we, we cut it down in half and it's still over 500 pages. So we hope that, you know, it does well and we can continue to provide this information for women. Mary, do you want to add on to that? Well, the only thing I'll add is that you know, when we started this journey, Jill, we actually went out and looked because I had thought, oh, there's going to be all kinds of books out there for women to help them. And there are a lot of books related to pregnancy, reproduction, a few on things like menopause, but there really wasn't a book like the book that we wrote 
that's focused on a lot of common clinical conditions because it's important to understand that almost all these conditions impact women differently than men. And, and we don't normally think about that. So when we think of women's health, we tend to think of what we call in medicine the bikini areas, you know, the breast and the reproductive areas. But women's health is everything about women across all clinical conditions. And so we just didn't have the bandwidth to cover things like pregnancy, reproduction, and there are other resources out there for women on that. So we focused on common clinical conditions and the, the first, which is the middle section of the book, and the first section on things about access and use uh, and healthcare in general for women. And then the third section is really the taking care of you section, where we have chapters on nutrition, which I know is very near and dear to your heart, mm-hmm. and sleep and mindfulness and physical activity and how you can be a health promoter to those around you and just a really fun section. That's fantastic. Yeah, I feel as you're speaking and I, I noticed that, you know, and you have specific conditions and, and a separate section for each, you know, for many different uh, conditions that are involved in women's health. So I think that's really helpful because it's it's a tool. It's not just a book that you read and, and you kind of, okay, I read that. It's, it's, it's a resource. Like you keep it on your desk and you go, oh, yeah. let me <laughs> look this up. Yeah, this is the book that you keep on the shelf. And, and you pull out when you think, oh, my goodness, did, you know, my doctor told me I'm anemic. Like, well, what does that mean? Or, you know, my mother has been told that she has, you know, lung disease. What does that mean? And, and really to give people the tools, women the tools to have better interactions. So, yes, we, we organized all, the, all those clinical chapters, of which there are 55, follow a template. You know, what is the condition? Can it be prevented? How is it treated? Why does it matter to women? Which is where we, our contributors, or, or Conwall or I, brought in the, the data that we have to date on how it impacts women differently. And if there were racial and ethnic differences, we brought that in too, because we know that disparities impact women, but in particular, they will impact women of color. So that was brought into that section. And then questions for you to ask your healthcare team, which I think is super, super valuable. And then the last section is pearls of wisdom from the experts. So also super helpful. Wow. That's amazing. I feel it's like does it fit in your purse? <laughs> <laughs> no, it does not fit in your purse. <laughs> I mean, it just seems like something that I would, you know, I work with clients and, and they go into, you know, medical interactions with doctors and, you know, various treatments and stuff. And sometimes I find myself sort of coaching them and, you know, saying, well, you know, make sure you, you ask this or, you know, take this, I'll right. print something out for them and bring this with you. And, and I'm not a medical doctor, but... I'm a woman and I've, you know, I'm, I am a healthcare professional. So I have, you know, a a higher degree of knowledge than the average person. But, um, I think that this, that feeling when you go in and like, you don't even know which questions you're supposed to be asking. Right. And, and I think for a lot of times people describe to me after their visit, I don't remember anything the doctor said. I didn't, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me to say X, Y, or Z or to ask about this thing. So I feel like you guys, next job is to make an app. 
<laughs> well, we we have it. The book is digital. So you, you could carry, put the digital uh, book on your, you know, mobile device. That's right. That's right. Okay. I knew that. I don't know. I forgot about that. Yeah. Here I am very old school, like put it in my huh? purse. You know, I didn't think of it either because I have, I have the printed book sitting here on the desk right in front of me, but, um, Yes, we'll think about an app. Right now, we're 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 happy that we're that we got the book done. Yeah. So what what is the purpose of this? I mean, besides the obvious, right? Um, helping women, you know, in their healthcare interactions. But what's the deeper purpose? Really, you know, I think that this book, like we we said, it is a tool that you can use throughout the course of your life, but. The big purpose is that we want to empower women to take care, better care of themselves. And that this is a tool that is going to, you know, hopefully allow them to better advocate for themselves, like throughout the course of their lifespan. So in these visits with, with their clinicians and overall, you know, I think a big thing for me, even as we kind of got started writing this, it was um, figuring out I was having my own health issues. And then I was, you know, like, I, I have a background in health and I was struggling. I was like hitting my head against a wall trying to get the care that I needed. And I was like, all right, if I have all of these tools and resources at my disposal and I still can't get the care that I need, what does the everyday woman who's not a healthcare professional, what does she do when she has to get care? And that, you know, was part of what led to this journey. And so I really hope that it's going to be a tool. We hope that it will be, especially those questions um, when you go in, you're going to be better prepared. You're going to be more empowered. You're going to feel like you have a voice. And I think that's a lot of times, like as women, we tend to do this. We'll go in, we'll just say, yes, yes, yes. Like nod our head and leave and maybe not have the best understanding of what's going on. Or maybe we felt like we didn't have the opportunity to ask those questions. And I know even as in writing this book and like feeling more empowered myself, I've gone in now, like more prepared to my doctor's visits with a note, with questions. And, you know, like really it's made my interactions that much better. And I've, I have felt that I'm able to kind of come back. I'm able to better use this. I'm n less afraid to like ask my clinicians questions. I'm more engaged in that process overall. And it has made a real difference in my health. And I think that's the biggest thing because we do have that power and this book, I hope, will kind of create that, like taking us from patient to agent of health. And, you know, that's, that is really our goal, that women are going to be able to advocate for themselves. And I think, you know, there were some horrifying statistics we learned along the way that we just didn't know. And I think when women have this knowledge, when women know just how much the system hasn't been working and hasn't been built for us, that's when change is going to ha happen because I didn't know this as we were starting. I didn't know that, you know, 80% of medications that are taken off the market, it's because they have adverse side effects in women. <laughs> you know, the, the kind of crazy statistics that women weren't included in clinical trials until 1994. And then it wasn't until 2016, we took a step back and we were like, oh, wait, the laboratory studies that take place before the clinical trials in 2016 is when we decided females should be included in that. That's yesterday. So medications, treatments, they have not been made or built for us. So when you learn that, then it's not a surprise that 80% of the medications that are taken off, it's because they don't work for women. So 
And, and Jill, I just want to say, not work for women means that women have been harmed. Yes. They've been hurt by these adverse reactions to these medications. So you don't, a drug doesn't get pulled off the market for no reason. There have mm -hmm. to be serious issues for a drug to be pulled off the market. And again, this goes back to what Conwall was saying, you know, like, oh, it's just too complicated to study female animals because they have reproductive cycles. So we should just ignore that because, and I mean, this is what happened in science. It's too complicated to study female animals because of fluctuating hormones, et cetera. So we're just going to study male animals. Oh, but we're going to create a drug that we're going to give to 50% of the population who has a reproductive cycle and fluctuating hormones. So it shows the blatant bias of the system that has been anti-woman you know, uh, for, <laughs> uh, for some time. Now, fortunately, that's, that's improving, but it's, it, you know, the battle's not over because we understand there's less funding for research into women's health. There's some bias which I believe is primarily unconscious bias, but it still exists in how female health professionals get promoted and advanced in academia. Hmm. So we still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's intense. It's intense. And it, I, I get this feeling of helplessness when I, when I hear this stuff, but then, then I was like, oh, but wait, there's this tool. <laughs> that can help. Like you, you, you're actually doing, you know, because it's so easy to just stew in anger and just think the system is messed up and oh, it's hopeless, but you create, you are moving in the right direction, right? You're helping women in a very specific, tangible way. I love it. Jill, thank, thank you. you so much. But I, I do need to, I want to make one specific comment on that. Mm -hmm. If we feel helpless, it's because we are allowing ourselves to feel helpless. There is no woman who should or needs to feel helpless. Now, I know it's easy to say that, okay? And when you're sick and things are overwhelming, it's really, you know, it's hard to maintain that strong front. But I am here for every listener out there to say, you do not have to feel helpless. You are in you need to be in charge and in control. It is your body. It is your life. It is your future. And if your healthcare professional doesn't listen to you, then go find another one because there are good doctors and nurses and physical therapists. There are good people out there that are, are better than others. Yeah. Right? So go yeah. find the one that you're comfortable with. I, yeah. I, I'll, I'll make one other comment because I hear this all the time. And, you know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. So I will hear women would come to me. They've had problems. They've seen other surgeons, which I'll translate is primarily white male because orthopedics is predominantly a white male profession. Okay. Mm -hmm. And not that I think that the majority of my colleagues are overtly trying to not take good care of their women patients. I think they are, but they're but some do a better job than others, as do we all. Okay. Right. But my point is, is that patients would come to me and they've, they've had an operation. They have a concern or they're not doing well. And I would say, well, did you talk to your surgeon? I mean, did you go back to the person who did the operation, talk to them about it? And their response was, well, he, because it's almost, I mean, in, in my profession, it's far more, like, and it could still be a she, but mo mostly it's men. 
Mm-hmm. They wouldn't listen to me. He didn't listen to me. Yeah. And I said, well, help me. Under, under, I want to understand, like, why did you choose this person to be your surgeon? Well, because I heard that he was so technically good. I wasn't worried about his, quote, bedside manner, unquote. Um, okay. Yeah. Every listener, please, if you take one thing away from what I've said in this podcast, you need doctors who are both skilled in terms of their knowledge and technical skill if they're a surgeon or a proceduralist and who has a bedside manner because if that person, and I'll just uh, identify as a surgeon right now, if that surgeon doesn't listen to you before the surgery, they're not going to listen to you after. Mm. And then your concerns are not going to be addressed. It is, you do not compromise and say, oh, I'm going to go to this surgeon because they have, quote, great technical skill. I don't care about their bedside manner. You need to care about both. Yeah. Okay. I'll get off my soapbox now. Oh, thank no. You. This is, uh, thank you so much for saying that and speaking so passionately about it. It's, I've heard it a million times, you know, oh, so-and-so is such a great doctor. Well, he's kind of a jerk, but, you know, he's got yeah. that reputation. Why are we taking that? And I think, for me, I, I, I was thinking from, from the beginning of this conversation about how we as women have, not all women, but many of us have this particular tendency to, we've societally been, you know, indoctrinated to believe that, you know, we should be quiet, we should be nice. There's like the whole nice girl syndrome, right? That spills over into our healthcare, obviously. <laughs> we're not, we're not societally, I think it's just, you know, it's hard. Like if you do advocate for yourself, now you're seen as a bitch or an aggressive woman or an angry woman. And it's like, no, I'm just, I'm just speaking my mind here. So I think it's a deeper issue for women to be able to advocate for themselves. Um, I think having the information and the empowerment is what we're trying to do here. But, you know, it takes, it takes courage for a lot of women, I think, to step out of their comfort zone. And, and there, and, the, and there's that whole dynamic of he, mostly he, right, is the expert. And I don't know anything about medical, you know, jargon. And so you're coming in already at that disadvantage, which your book helps to sort of arm women with some more information. I just think that aspect is hard. I, I've, I've found that working with clients where, you know, they'll come back with certain lab work let's say they're, you know, I'm, I, I can't write a prescription for blood work, but I can read labs, like, you know, nutritional a- aspect of labs. And I'll say, well, did they say anything about your, you know, your blood sugar being over 100, your fasting blood sugar, or your vitamin D being 20 or 15 or 10 even? <laughs> no, they didn't say anything. And I'm like, well, did you ask them? It's like, no, you know, it's like this weird dynamic mixed in with women, typically most women just having a hard time stepping forward and, and speaking their mind. So it's infuriating to, to, <laughs> and I don't, I don't like, uh, you know, a big thing that I advocate for in, with all of our clients and on this podcast is that this is not um, a session in now a listener feeling shame or blame or guilt about this, right? It's about saying, this is the pattern knowledge of, honestly, I didn't even know about the medications. I didn't realize that there were, that women were not included in, in this research. I never knew that. And I've read tons of study. It just never, I never knew that. So just having that knowledge alone and just saying, okay, I, I do have resources available to me and I can take that little bit of extra courage. And if that person is, has a bad bedside manner, 
I can find another. I'm a, I'm a customer. I'm a customer. I can go and find another, just like I would change, buy a different car if I didn't like it. So anyway. Uh, <laughs> and in such an important area of our lives, right? I mean, yeah. honestly, there's, there's nothing that would be more critical to us than our health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I always find it, it's, it's not amusing, but I find, I, I've always found it so notable that a woman, if she is there with her child or her spouse and someone is not communicating, right? That, that woman as the advocate is going to speak up and say, yes. this, this, this doctor or this nurse or this healthcare professional, right, is a jerk. And mm-hmm. I don't want you, honey, I don't want you going back to that doctor. I didn't like that doctor. That doctor didn't talk to you. That doctor never looked at you. They just kept looking at the computer, right? Yeah. So that woman, when she's in, I call it, you know, tiger mom mode, mm-hmm. right, is, is, is assertive. But when that woman herself is the patient, for some reason, she loses some of that um, confidence in being assertive. And that's, that shouldn't be. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Kamal, did you want to, I'm sure you want to add to this. So by the way, I, I, I mentioned it in the intro, but Kamal is a medical anthropologist and, and there's more, right? <laughs> so tell us a little bit about what you do, Kamal. And, and also I'm curious, you know, I, I, I heard your story and, and Mary too, I would love to hear a little bit more about, you know, how, what led you to really feel so strongly that you had to write this book. Yeah. So medical anthropologist, I, I like to explain it to my friends as like, you know, we study the difference between what people say versus what people do. Um, even though that's a very simplistic, I guess, version of it, we we kind of, you know, our, our job is to research health culture or cultures of health and kind of understand, you know, root causes of what what is taking place, what is causing these problems. And then, you know, the type of work that I do specifically is community-based participatory action research, where we work with communities um, to figure out really, you know, instead of like the research going in and saying, okay, I see this problem and here's what we're going to do about it. Let's study this. It's really the community that guides the work. And even in this process of writing this book, we really took that approach, right? So we we reached out, Mary and I, we did, you know, an informal study, basically, of like reaching out to our friends and the women in our life and asking them, what has your experience been with the healthcare system, right? Like, what have you experienced just kind of open ended? And, um, you know, the response was massive. I think when we when we did that survey, Mary sent it out to 10 folks, I sent it out to 10 folks. And we said, you can share this with other women if you want, but we're closing it in three days, we kind of just want to get a feel. And we had almost 100 responses. And Mm. these were long, detailed responses of what women have experienced. And it was overwhelmingly bad with the healthcare system, you know, and then with that, we kind of, we pieced together. All right. So like, what could we do right now? We can't change this system. We can't like flip a switch and change the system, but what could we do right now that we could literally give to women, put literally in the hands of women to change this. Um, and so that's kind of how this book came about, you know, and I had I was undergoing my own health challenges. And with that, you know, when you get angry enough, you're going to do something to change that. And I was lucky Mm -hmm. enough that I met 
Mary. I had been following her work for a while and, you know, I'm I'm super blessed to have her as a mentor and now co-author. So I, I, I didn't know that it would lead to this, this tool, but really, you know, this is our, this is our bread and butter. This is what we're passionate about. The proceeds of this also go to fund education and research at Mayo Clinic. Mm -hmm. So really we're doing what we can, because I think that when women know, and they have this, they're going to take better care of themselves. They're going to encourage each other to take better care of themselves. And what you were saying earlier, you know, sometimes we kind of lose that courage. And I think for me, I definitely sense that. And in writing this book and knowing that there's this community of women out there, because there there were over a hundred, there I think a hundred and eleven women um, who are all physicians or medical experts who contributed to this book. And knowing that I have this community of women that has my back and really supports, you know, they want me to get the best health possible. They want me to be as healthy as possible. Like even walking into my healthcare encounters, like with that knowledge. I feel like, all right, I can do this. And right, you know, I'm not going to be a, I'm not going to be like a disruptive patient by asking this, by asking my questions and I can do it, you know, in a way that gets me the care that I need. And I've just, I've just found it's been way better. So. Yeah. That's wonderful. Thank all you. Right, I probably didn't answer the original question, but. No, 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 that was great. I, I think it's good to know a little bit more about what you do. And, and yeah, that's amazing that, that so many people responded in that way. I, it's, it's not surprising at all. You know, I'll, I'll share with you my, my little story. When I was pregnant, I actually was pregnant with my first daughter in Japan. Oh, wow. And yeah, <laughs> Liz, I'm pretty sure they're way behind us, but maybe they're not in some ways. I actually don't know about their medical research and, you know, if they're using women or not. But I will say that when I was pregnant, the doctor kept telling me I was fat. <laughs> like, no, I'm not fat. I'm pregnant. <laughs> There's a difference. You know, it's like all these little insidious little jabs, like microaggressions, right? We have a word for it yes. now, finally, yes. microaggressions that just wear away at you over a lifetime. And, you know, I have a, a colleague, she's a nutritionist as well, and she taught, she really specializes in perimenopause. And she talks about how, you know, even in school, with, you know, getting master's degree in, in nutrition, we, we spent a lot, like you said, Mary, the, the bikini area, right? The pregnancy, you know, a puberty, pregnancy, breastfeeding, and she, she said that it was in, in many of her textbooks, and we probably shared a lot of the textbooks, but, you know, like a couple paragraphs on menopause. It's like, oh, well, you know, she's done making babies and let's just, you know, send her out to the pasture. <laughs> Sorry, I'm sounding very cynical yes. right now, but well, we <laughs> I feel like that's kind of what, what's happening. So anyway, I have a vision of like of the, these books being bought in bulk for community centers, centers, right? Like, um, like I live near Nyack, New York, and there's the Nyack Center where we have a lot of women and children utilizing their services. They need like 20 of these books sitting on the counter there. That's got to be like a, like a government grant or something, but I guess that's maybe that, that kind of thing doesn't happen. <laughs> you know, Jill, it's so funny you said that because I was just thinking of a story to share. And one of the reasons why... Conwell and I are so um, impassioned about ad em empowering women. So I also do a lot of work uh, in the health equity space, and I chair a national nonprofit called Movement is Life. Mm -hmm. We have a community-based program called Operation Change, 
18 weeks, three hours a week. We do some education, movement, motivational interviewing to really help women with knee pain and comorbidities like obesity, diabetes, hypertension change their personal behaviors because we all have the ability, regardless of our socioeconomic status, to improve our health through our personal decisions. Okay. So the story that, uh, that was just so powerful to me was one of our women from uh, one of our Chicago groups, which was our Latina group in Chicago. And we grouped, we do, we do programs based on grouping by race, ethnicity, so that we can make the lectures that, you know, that the food uh, preparations and demonstrations, the music more culturally aligned. So this Latina woman goes, tells the story about how she goes home and she starts preparing a healthy dish for herself at dinner. And then the regular food that she makes for her family, her husband makes fun of her. Why are you cooking that, etc.? She has the courage to persist, you know, and that is a very patriarchal, patriarchal culture. She persists. She's eating her healthy dish, right? And the kids and her husband are eating the normal stuff that she cooks. Then the children start eating what she makes for herself. And then eventually the husband even starts eating it. And that is the power of one pebble in a pond. That woman has sent ripples out to the shore. She is not just improving her health, but the health of her children and now her husband. And that improves the health of our communities. And we have to improve community health. If there's one lesson that I hope we learned in this horrible pandemic was that no one is immune and you can't, and an affluent community cannot feel that they're protected. So Mm -hmm. if we're going to have a virus rage through a a lower socioeconomic community and the affluent people say, well, I don't really care about them. You can't do that. Mm -hmm. One, it's morally apprehensible, but two, right there, they remain at risk. We are all connected. So, so we, so changing the health of our communities is, is linked to changing the health of women because it's women that drive health in the family. And I know that's a sexist statement, but in general, that's still true. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. It's, it's like you were saying earlier, you know, advocating for the child and the husband or the, the mother and not for ourselves. It's the, the great irony. Here we are actually the ones with the power. <laughs> exactly. We do. And we have to, and let's embrace it. Let's celebrate it. Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, thank you so much for saying that. I love that. So I think we can start to wrap it up. Is there anything else that you, you know, didn't share that you feel like you really want to say or express about any any of this, what we've talked about, the book or, you know, um, your experiences? Yeah. Jill, I want to get into the shared decision making. So that's right. Yes. Okay. Versus informed consent, because this term, this is something yeah. I, I haven't, I wasn't aware of as well. So Jill, one of the other uh, chapters that we have in the book is on shared decision-making. And I want to just point out to our listeners, there's a difference between shared decision-making and the medical term informed consent. So if, for example, you're having an operation, I'll just say knee replacement surgery because I've done lots and lots of those. So I must obtain informed consent from my patient before I do that operation, which means I have a conversation that says, here's the risks of the surgery, 
Here's the potential benefits. Does that make sense to you? They say yes, they sign. Okay, we go ahead with the operation. That is different than shared decision-making. Shared decision-making is a concept where we are taking into account the patient and myself, the patient's values and preferences into this decision-making process. For example, a few years ago, a friend, a friend of mine from the gym said, I want you to see my mother. She's, you know, she's just not walking anymore. She's going, she lives in a retirement home. She's going down to dinner in the wheelchair. She's got bad knees. They've got a lot of arthritis. I think you should do knee replacement surgeries on her. I said, oh, I'm happy to see your mother. So the mother comes in with the, my friend from the gym and his sister. So two kids and the older mom, mm -hmm. she's in a wheelchair. She has horrible arthritis. Okay. So she doesn't walk because of her arthritis. I say, are you having pain when you're sitting? No. Do you have trouble sleeping at night? No. So when does the pain bother you? When I walk. I said, do you want to walk more? I don't need to walk more, was her response. She's perfect. So we have a conversation. She's perfectly happy going down to the dining room in the wheelchair. She doesn't actually care about walk, walking more. She doesn't want to walk more. She's content. Okay. Now, so, okay, should she be more active from a health perspective? Absolutely. Would it help her health? Absolutely. But does she want to do it? No, that is not her preference or her value. And if I operated on her, she would not do well in rehab because she's not motivated and mm -hmm. she would have a stiff, painful, total knee and it would be a bad outcome. So mm -hmm. I turned to the children, her adult children, and I said, your mother doesn't want surgery. She's, you want her to have an operation because you want her to regain a level of functionality, but she's not interested in that. And I, I mean, I think that we need to, res that's what we need to respect. That's yeah. shared decision-making, taking yeah. into account her values and her preferences. And that is a very important concept. Why? Because unfortunately, there's a lot of inappropriate surgery that happens in the United States. And I don't think that any of my surgeon colleagues are intentionally, you know, operating on someone that they don't think they'll help. But for example, that woman could have gone to another orthopedic surgeon and have been easily told, yes, let's do knee replacement surgery. And we know that upwards of a startling, I mean, it's really shocking, 50% of low back surgeries and a third of knee replacement surgeries are inappropriate. There's a lot of surgery that's happening out there that shouldn't happen. So that's actually the reason why I, you know, I left the comfort and security of academia to co-found Vori Health, uh, virtual, we're a virtual musculoskeletal medical practice. And our focus is let's try and get you better without an operation. And if you, if you need surgery, we're going to refer you to a great surgeon. I'm just, I'm so blown away by the fact that a surgeon created <laughs> uh, this whole program to avoid, you know, avoid surgery when, when possible, right? We, we know that sometimes it's necessary, but I always say to clients, because clients will ask me, I mean, they'll ask me, and I'm, I'm not a medical doctor. I mean, I can't tell you if you get surgery or not, but I can tell you that I think that, that, you know, most of the time there are a lot of other things that you could do before you, you ha have to have surgery. So why not, you know, talk to your doctor about considering 
these 20 other things that you could be doing before, you know, that kind of extreme invasive, you know, solution. So I didn't realize 50%, 50% of back surgery. So we know this is data from Walmart. Walmart and some other employers have um, what they call spine centers of excellence. So if you work for Walmart, they've published this in Harvard Business Review. If you work for Walmart and your local spine surgeon recommends spine surgery, Walmart will pay for you and a companion to go to one of the spine centers of excellence where you're seen by a spine surgeon. And half the time, that individual is told you shouldn't have surgery or you haven't had enough non-surgical treatment first, mm-hmm. and it, it, that the surgery is inappropriate, okay? So yes, some of those 50% of patients may go on to ultimately need surgery, mm-hmm. but the fact that it's such a high number is very you know, shocking to me. And here's another not so fun fact, 7.4% of patients who have surgery on their low back are back in the operating room within one year. That to me is just a mind-blowing number. That's published in peer-reviewed literature, okay? So like when we talk about informed consent, like if someone said to me, Mary, you know, I think you need this back operation. And I'm not trying to rail on my spine surgery colleagues and my co-founder is a spine surgeon, okay? Our company's founded by two surgeons who understand that there is an absolute role for surgery. Surgery is a wonderful, wonderful treatment for the right patient and the right condition. But people need to be appropriate candidates. That means shared decision-making. It means doing appropriate non-surgical care. And so we emphasize that in the book, Taking Care of You. Yeah, that's wonderful. I I actually had lower back pain since I was in my early 20s. I just, you know, I had, I never went, got to the surgery point, but, you know, went to all these different practitioners. I mean, acupuncture, chiropractor. I mean, I saw medical doctors and physical therapists, but I, it actually was fixed in my late, a couple of years ago in my, in my mid forties by, I just happened to be working with a, a very high level personal trainer and I had injured my shoulder and about six months into, you know, working on my shoulder, which meant of course, working on the whole body. I, uh, I said, I don't have any lower back pain. And this was, this was probably, this was like 2016. So we're six years in and I still can go out to my front yard, you know, thing and, and shovel snow for two hours and not have any lower back pain. And there was a doctor many years ago in my twenties who suggested surgery. <laughs> I was like, no way. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I was sort of brought up skeptical of medical, you know, invasive medical procedures. That was right. just how my, my mom kind of brought us up. But a lot of people aren't. And the truth is that I, I believe this, and I, I would hope you would agree, Mary, is that surgery doesn't, in probably many of the cases, doesn't actually address the root cause of the back pain. The back pain is a kind of a a result of, you know, it's a symptom of dysfunction. I'm, I'm sure that's not always yeah. the case, but I know that was the case with me because obviously we fixed it by, you know, strengthening my abdominal muscles and stretching, you know, the QL and all these fancy muscles that I learned about. <laughs> and you know, Jill, it, that's absolutely true. Surgery can be very helpful, but typically in older patients, you know, if they have arthritis, they're still going to have some symptoms after surgery from the arthritis. But there's one other point I want I want to make. Sometimes I think in our 
we see the issue of women not being empowered to ask the right questions as somehow linked to women of lower socioeconomic status. That Mm. it's the poor women that have lower health literacy that are the ones that are having the, the challenge. Okay. I was at an alumni event for my university last weekend and I'm, I'm, and I'm introduced to this woman. I'm sitting at this reception and she is have, she's scheduled for knee replacement surgery. And so her friend that knows me says, Oh, Mary's an orthopedic surgeon. You should talk to her about this. And I said, you know, I'm happy to talk to you about it. And I said, so how, how severe are your symptoms? And she looks at me like, well, what symptoms? I'm like, your pain, like how, how much pain do you have every day on average? And she said, well, I really don't. So then I'm like, well, well, and now I'm like, well, then what the hell? Like, girlfriend, what the, what are you doing here? Right. So, so then I'm asking some additional questions, which, which basically is she has pain if she pivots and twists when she plays racquetball. Mm. And that is why she's going to have knee replacement surgery because she believes that she'll be able to pivot and twist without pain to play racquetball. Obviously, playing racquetball is very important to her. I get that. Mm-hmm. And I said, mm-hmm. Did you specifically ask your, does your surgeon know that this is the main reason why you want to have knee replacement surgery so that you can play racquetball and twist and pivot without pain? And she said, well, I don't know. I said, have you asked your surgeon if after knee replacement surgery, he, and he's a very famous surgeon. I I know him. I asked her, who have you seen? He's a very famous guy. I said, did you ask him? do you believe that I'll be able to play racquetball at the level that I want to after knee replacement surgery? She said, no. I said, Mm. please, please, you have to go talk to him about this. Knee replacement is not like the the knee you had when you were younger. I mean, I've had this conversation, Mm. Jill, I don't know, a million times with patients, okay? It's not like the knee you had when you were younger. It won't be as good as the joint God gave you, okay? If you have bad arthritis and it's severe enough, you will benefit from the surgery, but Mm -hmm. you cannot have an expectation that it's going to make you like you were when you were younger. But this woman, in my opinion, right, didn't have a clear understanding of what the surgery could do for her. And we know that, you know, 20% of people after knee replacement surgery are not completely satisfied. And that's a lot of, uh, mostly women. Women tend to be more dissatisfied than men. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean the surgery didn't help them, but they're not satisfied, which means the surgeon and the patient didn't have a mutual level of expectation and understanding as to what the outcome could produce. So this is all, it's not all just uh, lower socioeconomic status women with poor health literacy that are not asking the right questions. This was a very highly educated, affluent, Caucasian female. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Ooh, that's crazy. And I think like some things like that, like I had a bunionectomy, <laughs> a very glamorous <laughs> surgery. It's the only surgery I've ever had when I was, you know, 23, 24 years old. Oh, maybe I was a little older, but in hindsight, I did not need that surgery. No way. No, how did I need that surgery? I mean, and I was totally, I was not involved in shared decision-making or even probably proper informed consent. 
I went on for the next three years to have pain in my foot that I only had if I was playing squash, actually, before the surgery. <laughs> so it is, you know, it's just, it's so pervasive and it's, and it runs so deep. But I think a lot of these types of surgeries that are perhaps elective, right? Like this woman wasn't going to die if she didn't get her, her knee replaced. Like, you know, <laughs> there are different types of surgeries that I, I've seen that so many times where uh, women are, and, and men too, you know, just electing to take that surgery. So I think both of you, the level of work that you're doing in the community, Movement is Life, is that the correct name? Movement is yes. life. I, I, yes. I actually say that a lot. Movement is life. <laughs> you know, the work that you're doing in the community, Kamwal, like it's just, it's so important. And this book is, it's also extremely important. We need more. We need more. Like you said, there, there's no books written on this. Like we need multiple books, but I'm glad that you, at least this one has been written and I'm definitely uh, going to tell all of my clients about it. I feel like this should be maybe like a little gift that I give our clients when they start working with it. Like this is just like oh, wow. a gift for you to to start, you know, and it should be everywhere because this is so, it's such an important issue. And I'm very appreciative of your time today to come and speak about this because it's, you know, we're planting seeds here. We're planting seeds. We're bringing awareness. It's It's just so crucial that we have these conversations. So thank you for being here today with me. Well, we're, very honored, Jill, and um, we hope that you know for those of your of the of our listeners that uh, are so inclined to, to get the book in either you know the print form or the the ebook or the audio book that they use it in the best of health and that helps them be empowered to advocate for better for themselves. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. And um, yeah, we also, you know, some of those resources we were talking about that we weren't able to include, we did put links on our website to that. And you can also mm-hmm. learn more about the, the full table of contents. Um, you can see some reviews. You can read the why we wrote it and how to use it on our website, which is just www.takingcareofyoubook.com. Dot com and it's got the links to our we're trying to work on social media a little bit um so it's got the links to that as well okay yeah that's great thank you so much both of you for being here thank you thank you Thank you so much for listening to that conversation that I had with Dr. O'Connor and Kamwal Hawk. So the book is called Taking Care of You, and you can find it if you go to takingcareofyoubook.com, you will see all the various ways that you can purchase the book, you know, through the standard uh, outlets, and they have an audible and a Kindle version. The one thing about getting the book, the actual physical book or the Kindle is that you'll get to see the illustrations, which I think would be helpful for, uh, you know, getting that deeper level of understanding about the various conditions. And hey, you know, get this book for yourself, but buy it for a friend, buy it for a loved one. We need to really be informed when we go into these situations uh, with, you know, medical interactions. So I think this is just, it's sort of a must have uh, book. And I think it's, it's something that we maybe want to buy for others, buy for people in our communities even. So uh, I hope that you enjoy the book and I, that you enjoyed this conversation. If you are looking for more inspiration and information, please check out our website, which is winweightloss.com. 
WIN stands for work with your nature, and we focus on wellness. And really, weight loss is a byproduct of improved health. And so when we work with our nature, we can improve our health and thereby lose weight in a healthy, sustainable and pleasurable way. And that's what I'm all about and our team. So uh, check that out. It's wynweightloss.com. And you can go to forward slash blog to check out all of our articles, which give you more information and inspiration. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.